Okay, people. Uh, page 137, where it says at the top, approaches to the unity of Isaiah. Page 137, where it says at the top, approaches to the unity of Isaiah. Uh, I've just been presupposing, was suggesting to you and presupposing, as it says at the top, that Isaiah 40 to 55 and 56 to 66 directly address a much later period than the time of Isaiah ben Amos. So Isaiah ben Amos was, was working, say, about 730, um, 730, not 730 in the morning. I suppose he did that as well. <laughs> 730, um, and uh, the prophet whose work lies behind Isaiah 40 to 55 is working in the 540s, nearly two centuries later. At least that's the, that's the, um, uh, the context that he's speaking to, the, pe- the situation. Uh, that's being addressed in these chapters is that uh, those circumstances of the people towards the end of the exile. Um, and then, on the usual assumption, the last, those last 11 chapters, 56 to 66, uh, are addressing uh, a different situation again uh, because they are describing a context, they're relating to a context uh, that seems to be that of people back in Judah uh, with all those pressures that you can read about in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So those three main parts of the book uh, address uh, very different periods. If 40 to 55 and 56 to 66 come from later prophets than Isaiah ben Amos, why are they part of the book called Isaiah? Wherein does the unity of the book of Isaiah lie? Now the the aforementioned Bernard Doom suggested that the two parts of the book, the two main parts, 1 to 39 and 40 to 66, were indeed of quite separate origin and were artificially joined. That is, they had a long scroll and they'd got 1 to 39 on it and 40 to 66, which was totally separate, would fit as well, so they put the two of them on the same scroll. So that the relationship between them is quite mechanical. That can't be right. Well, it can't be right in the light of the um, ten things that I'm about to... um, say on these two pages. That is, there are all sorts of ways in which the book shows that it holds together as a unity, uh, even though it isn't a, the, its unity does not lie in, in its coming from one guy, but uh, you can see unity of other kinds in it. First, there's a unity of theme. Uh, at the very beginning of our looking at Isaiah, uh, I try to show you how the theme of the holiness of God runs through this book, of Yahweh being the Holy One of Israel. And that's true about the whole, uh, about all the major parts of this book, in a way which it isn't true about Jeremiah and Ezekiel or anybody else. Ezekiel is keen on the holiness of God, but this, that title uh, of Yahweh as the Holy One of Israel uh, is distinctive to the book of Isaiah and appears in all the parts of it. A focus on Zion uh, comes uh, throughout this book. It's a, it, that's another way of saying, in a way, it's a Jerusalem book. There was somebody asked about Zion. Um, one, of the, one of the questions that somebody asked was about um, if, um, if Zion was Yahweh's bride and now the church is Yahweh's bride, does that mean Zion, Israel, has ceased to be Yahweh's bride? And what I suggested to you um, before uh, the break near the beginning this evening indicates that that can't be so. Um, uh, it's uh, um, impossible to imagine that God would cast off his bride, uh, and presumably he hasn't got two brides, because that kind of wouldn't work, would it, really? Um, you, can't quite, you can't quite work work maybe with that image, but it's more... Well, Paul's image for this is a, is a tree. When Paul discusses this question in Romans 9 to 11... He talks about an image, again, that we've come across, not least in the book of Isaiah, of the people of God as a tree. Uh, and so um, what he sees as happening in his own lifetime, it, through the fact that, that Jewish people, are, by and large, have not acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah, and have thereby forfeited their own place within the tree, is that it's as if um, branches have been cut out of the tree. And the advantage of that, says Paul, is that God can thereby graft in some other branches because there's kind of room for them. Uh, That's you and me. Um, But there's only one tree. And that's the difference from the the new Israel idea, which is that there was a tree, God chopped that tree down, and then planted another one. 
That's not how Paul talks. There's only one tree. Um, and then Paul says, uh, and it shows how the, the, even the idea of a tree is hard to kind of make work, theologic, make, make work theologically, as the idea of Zion as God's bride is hard to make work theologically, that God can graft back in the branches that have been cut out, which you never do in horticulture, but that just, you probably find that your own sermon illustrations aren't quite big enough for the theology. In fact, it'd be worrying if our illustrations were big enough for the theology. Uh, the, um, the illustration of the, of the tree illumines some things, but it doesn't illumine other things. The illumination of the bride illumines some things, but not other things. Zion is Yahweh's um, bride. The position of Zion um, is one that, that is, is a concern throughout the book uh, of Isaiah. It's always concerned about Jerusalem. And even in those chapters in 40 to 55, it's often talking about Jerusalem. It's talking about Zion. Not because, at least probably, not because the prophet is in Jerusalem, but because um, you need to work again with that image of the audience in the house and the audience on the stage that I talked about the other day. Um, probably, on my assumption, the audience in the house for Isaiah 40 to 55 is living in Babylon. But on the stage, but some of the conversation between the prophet, uh, some of the, what's the, what the prophet is involved in on the stage, involves addressing Zion. Because for the people in exile, it either is the case or it should be the case that what's going on in Jerusalem is of vital importance to them. Um, now, now you, 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 some people think that the stage and the, or the house is the other way around. That is, the prophet is in Jerusalem, and that's where the house is, the audience in the house is, and that the prophet is then talking about the exiles, but the exiles are the people on the stage. You can see that's a kind of reverse of the way I was just talking. And it's, well, it's, it's something people argue about. Um, but what, what is clear is that whether you're in exile or in Jerusalem, the other place is vitally important to you. And in particular, if, you, if you're in exile, the mere fact that you're in exile doesn't mean that you stopped, the, the, well, never mind about what you think, doesn't mean that Jerusalem has stopped being of vital importance to you. Jerusalem is, tends to be more the word that people use. Um, somebody asked about Jacob and Israel, what, and them being in parallelism, and I'm not, I'm not sure I know really that there's a particular significance about that, but Zion and Jerusalem also appear in parallelism. Jerusalem is the place, there are signposts to Jerusalem that aren't so close to Zion. Actually, there are one or two. But Jerusalem is the kind of political place. Zion is more the religious theological, um, has more got the, the religious theological resonances. Um, and thus the extent to which the whole book uses the expression Zion as a way of talking about God's city is significant. There's a concern with God and the nations through the whole book in which there is both an insistence that God will bring about judgment um, upon uh, the imperial power of the day uh, and that you get that in all three parts of the book but also a declaration that God's um, revelation is to come to all the nations and that God's revelation will come to all the nations through um, looking at what God is doing with his own people. Uh, so that in Isaiah 2, it's them being attracted to Jerusalem. In Isaiah 40 to 55, it's that salvation to the nations. Uh, salvation is going get, to get known to the nations through what God does in making it possible for the people to come home. Uh, and then some extraordinary things in 56 to 66 that raised eyebrows for a number of you where you couldn't quite believe what you were reading. It was really funny watching these postings where you couldn't believe what was being... That they, are, they, are these people, these Israelites, have got to go out and be missionaries? Jeff, what was you said about the Great Commission? Yeah, the Great Commission. What's the Great Commission doing in the Old Testament? Um, and somebody else was... Uh, a couple of people were um, uh, bemused. Were, were, thought it was, how, the, he's talking about the, the, these foreigners coming to be ministers to Yahweh. That can't be right, as it were. Um, so 56, um, 6. Foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh, to minister to him, to love the name of Yahweh. Um, and, uh, and likewise, at the very end uh, of the book, um, where the prophet talks about uh, some uh, of the um, survivors of the nations uh, coming to uh, serve as priests and Levites. 
uh, in 6621. So there runs through the entire book these two sets of attitudes to the nations. Um, and if you're the nations, you choose which one applies to you. And then fourthly, uh, a, for, a fourth term that recurs through the whole book is the word that up there translated right or right uh, or rightness, um, and that's the the word sedek and sadakar that I talked about in connection with um, uh, Jeremiah. They, these are terms that, and that links again with the point I was making about God's God's commitment to Israel, that God has entered into a relationship with Israel, which means that, uh, and when you're in a relationship with somebody, you've got to do the right thing by them. Um, and the notion of sedek and sadakar, which is often translated righteousness, is of um, God accepting um, the obligation to do the right thing by Israel. And that means, for instance, that although in no way do they deserve to be brought home out of exile, there's nothing about them that deserves anything. There is no faithful remnant. Uh, but because of God's commitment uh, to Israel, God has got to do the right thing by them. Uh, and that's, that notion runs through the book. The converse is they are supposed to live that way with God and also with one another. Sadakar is supposed to be characteristic uh, of the community's life. So hence the um, awful nature of, the, of that song in chapter 5 about the vineyard where God looked for Sadakar and instead, uh, sorry, where God looked for Sadakar and instead saw Sadakar. God looked for righteousness and behold a cry. Uh, the word for a cry, for the out, a cry of protest um, at the terrible things that are being done by people to one another in the community. The word for a cry is sa'akar. Uh, the word for right, for right relations, right commitments to one another in the community is sadakar. These two words are only one letter different, but they mean totally the opposite thing. Uh, in, from his vine, God looked for sadakar, but what, what God saw is sa'akar. Unity of theme, then running through the book. Second, themes that develop through the book. Um, one neat one uh, noticed by uh, an Australian scholar called Edgar Conrad is the way in which the um, invitation challenge not to be afraid, to fear not, uh, recurs through the book. And he notes how that's addressed to the king in chapter 7, where they're out, that's the virgin shall conceive passage, when they're out looking at the water supply, and Isaiah tells Ahaz not to be afraid. And then in chapter 10, God tells Israel as a whole it needn't be afraid. And then in chapter 37, God tells Hezekiah not to be afraid, the same as, um, or Isaiah tells Hezekiah not to be afraid, as he told Ahaz. And in chapter 41, that passage I read to you earlier on, um, God says to the exiles, fear not, don't be afraid. So, fear not to the king, fear not to all the people, fear not to the king, fear not to all the people in a nice kind of alternating. What's then striking about that, Conrad points out, is that it bridges the distinction between 1 to 39 and 40 to, 56, 40 to 66. And then Peter Miskal, who teaches in, um, in Denver, uh, has done an interesting study of, of all the images that come in the book and the way in which you can... So you look up all the references, to, the references to trees in the book. There are lots and lots of references to trees in the book. Lots and lots of references to water. And you can see themes developing through the book as a whole. A third way of seeing the interrelationship between the parts of the book has been um, brought into prominence uh, recently by um, a German scholar called Rolf Redtorf, though his basic point is one that um, other people have made, but he's made more of it. The beginning of 56 is this. Thus says Yahweh, maintain Sadakar and do Mishpat, for soon my salvation will come and my Sadakar will be revealed. Neat thing about that is, well, first is that it uses this word sadakar in two different connections within the same verse. That sadakar is something that the people have got to do, but it's also something that God will do. Now, the wretched NRSV doesn't, um, uh, I'm not going to hit it this time. Well, I might if I get really angry in a minute. Um, it, it doesn't help you to see that because it uses different words. I just want to make sure I tell you the, um, the words right. Um, yes, um, 
when it, uh, maintain justice, do what is right, uh, that's, that's the word sadakar, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. Deliverance is the word sadakar. So the first half of the verse challenges Israel to do sadakar. The second half of the verse promises that God will do sadakar. What Rentorf then suggests is that the first half of that verse, maintain justice and do sadakar, sums up 1 to 39. Soon my salvation will come and my sadakar will be revealed. The second half of the verse sums up 40 to 55. So it's kind of like, to use an image I've used with you before, it's almost as if these are the three seasons of Isaiah. And what the first, what 56.1a does is summarize season one. And 56.1b summarizes season two, as it were, then to, to tell you, and that's the agenda for the rest of this book. Because that verse puts those two points that I referred to earlier on as that puzzled somebody in the posting. That is, God's giving promises uh, to people and God also challenging people. And, and these are mysteriously interwoven in the book. Yeah, they're mysteriously interwoven. And, that's, and the book knows what it's doing. It puts that in its very first line. You've got to do Sadakar. God will do Sadakar. The tricky question that it doesn't quite resolve is what's the relationship between those two? Uh, but what it, says, what it implies is there certainly is a relationship. We know God wants you, you to show Sadakar, 1 to 39. We know God is going to show Sadakar, 40 to 55. Those together provide the agenda the interrelationship between them provides them with the agenda, provides the agenda for, for 56 to 66. And Brueggemann, in, in um, his commentary, um, expounds, uh, takes up that notion of these three parts of the book being in dialogue with one another, uh, emphasizing different things that need emphasizing um, and, uh, and leaving, uh, leaving as, as agenda for you thinking through the nature of the relationship between those. I think, will you let me keep going? Um, and I'll do questions at the end. Fourthly, a continuing ministry or, ministry or inspiration. Chapter 6 is the account of Isaiah uh, and his call. Chapter 40 uh, is an account uh, of second Isaiah's call in which... Uh, the prophet here, here, here over, overhears God commissioning the comforters of Jerusalem and then hears God saying, uh, or hears, hears somebody saying, cry out. And the prophet's reply is, and I said, what shall I cry? A voice says, preach. And I said, what can I preach? All the people are grass, their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of Yahweh blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. Well, here's the RSV. No, I'm not going to hit it. The NRSV, like the other translations, doesn't put the inverted commas, the quote marks, where they need to come. Because the whole of um, the latter part of verses 6 and 7 are all part of the prophet's reply. What shall I cry? All the people are grass. Their constancy is like the flower. I can't preach to these people when they're withered by the hot breath of Yahweh. The people are grass. And then God replies in verse 8. Yes, you're right. The grass withers, the flower fades. But there's just one thing you've forgotten. But the word of our God will stand forever. So there is a typical prophetic um, unwillingness to accept God's commission. I can't go and proclaim, I can't go and prophesy to these people. And, God's, and God, as it were, overruling, God providing the answers um, to, to the objection. 61 um, is then the third Isaiah's call. The spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. You can hear the language of second Isaiah in that um, testimony to God's call. It's as if second Isaiah takes up the vocation of first Isaiah and third Isaiah takes up the vocation of second Isaiah and in the way that, that the prophets use their words you can see the way in which they have been inspired by the ministry of the previous guy. Um, 
So when Jesus picks up Isaiah 61, uh, he's not picking up something that was written as a prophecy. He's picking up something that was the testimony of somebody who'd been ministering 500 years previously uh, and saying, that's mine too. That's what I'm doing. That's filled out in me. Uh, You could say, if you like, that the relationship of Jesus to to Isaiah 61 is a typological relationship rather than a prophecy and fulfillment relationship. And actually that's also true, I think, about Isaiah 53. Typology, that is, uh, sees what God does in Christ as repeating the pattern of what God did um, in Israel. Uh, And and so if Isaiah 53 is a description of what God was doing through a prophet in the time of the exile, then that becomes a type uh, of what Jesus does. Jesus does that thing again um, on a larger scale. And if Isaiah 61 is the prophet's testimony, then that becomes a type of what Jesus will do in the sense that Jesus takes up that testimony um, and proclaims it uh, as something that expresses what he's about on a similar but, um, but larger scale to what the prophet had been doing. A continuing ministry or inspiration. Number five, a developing insight or plot running through the books. Um, again, one or two people were mystified as to why David had disappeared from 40 to 66. Um, and it is indeed the case that, as I suggested uh, a few minutes ago, that the role of David is fulfilled um, politically by Cyrus. He is the anointed. Um, I read to you the other week a passage from Isaiah 55 that indicates that another aspect of David's role as a means of there being a witness to what God does to the whole world is fulfilled by the community. The covenant relationship that God had with David is now a covenant relationship that the whole community has, according to 55. Uh, and, and so the community's being in the position of, of the servant of God is the, communi- the whole community's having that vocation before God. David had been God's servant. Now the whole community is God's servant. So there is um, a, a kind of plot about the book in which uh, David is very important in the earlier part, but the community comes to be the focus more in the latter part. Um, another way of putting that uh, is uh, in, in the next line on the sheet where Hezekiah had said those cynical-sounding words, the word of Yahweh that you've spoken is good, for he thought, there will, there will be peace and security in my days. What are, is there going to be peace and security in the future? Uh, is, God, is God going to fulfill his purpose for his people? And this guy, this guy Wilhelm uh, Boykin, suggests that that passage in chapter 55 answers that implicit question raised by 39. Uh, the way I was trying to talk about the servant suggested to you that the servant theme develops. It's, it's, all, it's, it's as if it was a narrative. There's a story being played out here. It's not, not, not literally a story, but, um, uh, but, but the question, who is God's servant, is one that receives a series of different answers, not kind of randomly, but with a kind of plot about it. Israel is God's servant. Oh, but Israel can't be God's servant. Okay, says God to the prophet, you're going to have to be God's servant. Oh, wow, thank you very much, says um, the prophet. Um, but ultimately, that's, it's still the, the community that counts, as the prophet makes clear again in that last chapter, chapter 55. And it's interesting then that in 50... four verse 17, when God has talked about, uh, in chapter 54, about the restoration of the community, 54 closes off with, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me. You're all the servants of the Lord, as it were, the prophet is saying. And the, ser- the, the phrase servants of the Lord is one that comes a number of times in 56 to 66. And that's a, another way of expressing that, uh, that fact that the servant role is not one that is taken away from the community, but one that it is restored in order to be able to fulfill. Number six, another, uh, sixth form of, of unity, form of linkage, is the linkage of prophecy and fulfillment. And that's one that goes on within the book. It, it, because this book comes from a period of over two centuries, um, 
you can have prophecy in the earlier part that's then fulfilled to which the latter part can appeal. To, to, can appeal. So in chapter 13, um, the prophet has declared that God is going to put down the Babylonians and is going to use the Medes in order to do that. I'm stirring up the Medes against them, says chapter 13. By second Isaiah's day, God has stirred up the Medes. They haven't actually conquered Babylon yet, but they've certainly got stirred up. Um, and so uh, chapter 41 can raise the question, um, who said this was going to happen? 41.21 Set forth your case, says Yahweh. Bring your proof, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, so that we may consider them and that we may know their outcome. Or declares to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm. Do anything. That we may be afraid and terrified. You indeed are nothing. Your work is nothing at all. Whoever chooses you is an abomination. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, he was summoned by name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. This is Cyrus. Who declared it from the beginning, so that we might know, and beforehand, that we might say he is right? There was no one who declared it, no one who proclaimed, no one who heard your words, God says to these so-called gods. I first have declared it to Zion. I give to Jerusalem a herald of good tidings. But when I look at these other gods and their worshippers, there's no one. Among these there is no counsellor who, when I ask, gives an answer. They're all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their images are empty wind. I mean, obviously the Babylonian gods are not able to say anything very intelligent about the rise of the Persian king who's about to thrash their empire. I beg your pardon? Uh, but God had said that. Yahweh had said that back in Isaiah 13. And now Cyrus is a, now um, second Isaiah is able to say, you see, it's happening before your eyes. Incidentally, that logic only works if um, the book is not written by one person. Because chapter 41 can't say, you see, um, it's been fulfilled, as it were, if it hasn't been fulfilled at the time when it's written. There were first events and there, were, there are new events. There were things that God was doing in Israel's earlier history and new things that God is doing now. Number seven over the page, um, if you've got pages. Scrolling down, down the page if you're scrolling down. A seventh form of unity is of the word of God declared and later preached. That is, you can see ways in which the second part of the book is preaching sermons on the first part of the book. The texts sometimes come from the first part, and the second one takes them up and says, oh, let me, let me preach a sermon on that, let me explain that, let me apply that to our present situation. So the picture of people streaming to Jerusalem in chapter 2 uh, lies behind the picture of God's servant bringing uh, God's decision to the nations in 42. What chapter 42 adds is the idea that the servant is going to be the means of that. Um, chapter 6 declares that, um, that that's the, the commission of Isaiah that said his job was to go and make people blind the end of 42 says listen you that are deaf and you that are blind look up and see who is blind but my servant yep God said he was going to make people blind and deaf God's made people, made people blind and deaf um, 29.16 was a passage in which first Isaiah uh, says to the people in his day, uh, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? Shall the things made say of its maker, he didn't make me? Or the thing formed say of the one who formed it, he has no understanding? In other words, the people are saying, what God is doing with us is stupid. We're the, God, they're the clay. They're saying that the potter is um, making something extremely stupid out of them. 45, 9 following picks that up. Woe to you who strive with your maker, earthen vessels with the potter. Does the clay say to the one who fashions it, fashions it what are you making? All your work has no handles. Exactly the same uh, words are picked up in, uh, in 45 as were there in 29. Um, chapter 35 is the passage that first talks about the wilderness blossoming uh, and, uh, and a road in the wilderness. 
Uh, and those themes are vastly expanded in the prophecies in 40 to 66. Hugh Williamson, in his book on Isaiah, has expanded some more of that. Eighth way in which the uh, book is a unity is the way in which it's kind of literally uh, structured as literature. Um, when I showed you my diagram at the beginning, then I showed you how 1 to 27 and 28 to 66 are kind of like concentric circles. I had them going one way around the clock and the other way around the clock. Um, the, another way of seeing it is to see the way in which uh, chapters 1 to 39 end up in chapters 36 to 39, 39 with the prospect of Babylon. But they've already had in chapter 35 the first exposition of the theme of God um, making a way in the wilderness and making the wilderness blossom, which looks forward to 40 to, 40 to 66. So, so the middle, that, that section of the book that runs from 35 to 39 is kind of provides a pair of hooks like this between the two halves. Because really 35 belongs with the second half and 36 to 39 belongs with the first half. But by putting, well, 34 and 35 before 36 to 39, or by putting 36 to 39 after 34 to 35, there's um, a, 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 a joining mechanism that holds the two together. You can't, you can't cleanly separate the two parts of the book because the promise of renewing the wilderness is already there in 34 to 35, and the end part of the ministry of First Isaiah is still there in 36 to 39. So the two halves kind of hook like this to one another. Uh, you get the same phenomenon, actually. Oh, no, sorry. 1 to 33, 34 to, to, to 66 is another way of seeing the two halves. The Qumran manuscript of Isaiah had a space at the end of 33, uh, and that put people on the track of, oh, these guys, these guys have spotted something. Th 33, uh, 1 and 33 are summarized the message of first Isaiah and the brackets around it, uh, and 34 and 35 are what starts off uh, the second half of the book. So another way of seeing the two halves of the book, which doesn't correspond to the 1 to 39, 40 to 66 division. So the, there are several ways in which the, uh, the book is held together. The book, can't, the book can't fall apart because of these various ways in which it's held together at the center. There's the same overlapping hook complexes uh, thing going on within 40 to 55 of trying to show that. Number nine. Uh, the book has a binary theology. That is, it, it, it holds together pairs of things which can be in tension with each other. It talks about punishment, and it also talks about deliverance. We like it talking about deliverance. We don't like it talking about punishment. It's got both. It talks ethics, and it talks promise. It talks about Jerusalem. It also talks about the Exodus. It talks about David, it talks about the servant. There are tensions between all of those, but what part of the profundity of the book is in holding together these things that stand in tension. Um, so it is possible to produce a theology of the book of Isaiah. And I know it is because I did it. So if you want to find where it is, then there's a link um, uh, at number 10 uh, where I've attempted to talk about the theology of the book as a whole. Okay, if this is one book, but it's got at least those three historical backgrounds, how did it come to be one book? How did the redaction happen? And Hugh Williamson, in his book with this very smart title, uh, The Book Called Isaiah. And it's, a gr it's a great title because it doesn't beg any questions, you see. Um, has this theory. I have no idea whether he's right, uh, because that's the trouble with redaction critical theories. You never know whether they're right. But here's a way, uh, a possible way of thinking about how it might have happened. First you've got um, the messages of Isaiah uh, ben Amos uh, being remembered and passed on. Uh, he remembered and passed on because he said to do that, back in, in chapter 8, he commissions his disciples to write down his stuff. Partly at least so that when, they, when it comes true, um, it will be demonstrable that he said those things and that he was speaking the word of the Lord and that the Lord was being active. So there's a collection of Isaiah's sayings. 
uh, <coughs> in the 8th century. The 7th century is the period when the Assyrians do um, get their comeuppance from the Babylonians. And that was something that Isaiah had talked about them doing. So there's um, popular scholarly uh, theory that when the Assyrians did get, them, did get defeated, that would provoke extra, extra interest in Isaiah's prophecies because Isaiah's prophecies were being fulfilled. So as, William, as I put there in summarizing Williamson, Isaiah's messages were remembered and passed on and amplified in the 8th century and then in the 7th century in light of their being fulfilled. Hugh Williamson's, Hugh Williamson's distinctive suggestion then is that um, they, they were remembered and passed on and amplified, but there wasn't a thing that, there wasn't a book of Isaiah then, uh, and that actually the person who put, who, who, who turned the book of Isaiah, the first Isaiah into a book, was second Isaiah. Isaiah of the exile, the guy who produced the prophecies in 40 to 55, collected the material that went back to Isaiah ben Amos and organized them in the kind of way I've tried to show to you in my diagram at the beginning as 1 to 12 and 13 to 23 and so on. Isaiah of the exile collected the material from Isaiah ben Amos and organized them in order that they would then lead into 40 to 55. Uh, and that that would have happened in the 540s in that period when um, Cyrus has been raised up by God but hasn't yet defeated the Babylonians. And then this stage, the, the third stage is that third Isaiah uh, added material to... Uh, that, that, that 1 to 55 was kind of in, the, in existence in more or less as we, as we know it uh, for third Isaiah then to add the material that we have in 56 to 66 in the late 6th or the 5th and or the 5th centuries, that is, either the beginning period after the exile um, or the period of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, anybody want to say anything about that? Hello? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it, when you've got it, when it's not just a matter of of general themes, but of concrete and uh, word. I mean, blindness and deafness isn't 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 a theme, isn't a theme that's always coming. Um, so when you get it talked about in two different parts like that, and, it, and it's the same words, then you should be on safeish ground. I would say. Uh, I'm, all, I'm always happier with theories that people put forward where you can point to concrete words um, than, than if people are just talking about themes. That's the nearest I've got to uh, kind of check. Mm hmm Yeah. Multiple authors. No, it it almost it almost does the opposite, really, because because you've got first Isaiah saying one thing, and then second Isaiah saying something different, uh, and and third Isaiah trying to deal with the the tension between the, the relationship between those two, trying to trying to work out. Well, not trying to work out how to reconcile them, because you can't do that, but, but trying to tease out um, the, the tension between them, which, which, um, which is what 3666 does. So that's why it's a, you, you have a conversation. It's a conversation or a dialogue, but always the term. You have a conversation or a dialogue between different people. I mean, you do if you... I mean, I talk to myself. Um, but you, you have to be careful about doing that, because I think you're nutty. Um, normally, conversations involve more than one person. And that's the, that's the point about the image. You've got more than one person um, conversing here uh, in a way that's 
that's necessary because the issue, because the, the nature of the theological and ethical issues is complex, so there needs to be a conversation. Uh, let's have a minute too in which you talk to one another about the, the notion of the unity of Isaiah and whether any of those ways of thinking about it kind of help you or which of them help you more than others or something like that. Talk to one another for two or three minutes. Um, what I want to do is to draw your attention to uh, reams of stuff in this course notes. Are you laughing at me again? Um, that I'm not going to cover, but um, it's there. You can read it if you want to. Um, there is um, some kind of exposition of chapter 40 on pages 124, 125. And 125 and 126, where it begins, Isaiah 40 to 55, how the prophecies got home to people, um, is, it doesn't say so. Oh, it does say so eventually. It's about um, form criticism. Um, well, it says in the, par in the paragraph, the opening paragraph, communication happens not just through the content of the words, but through the way we say them. We communicate against the background of things that speaker and audience take for granted. And much of the communication happens through the relationship of what is said and what is taken for granted. So, so when you get some letters, when you collect some letters, you know to a fair extent what's in these letters before you open them. Um, it, you know whether it's a bill or whether it's a love letter, chance will be a fine thing, or whether it's a letter from your mother or, or, or an a alleged free offer. You can tell that before you open it, at least if, we, if you're within the culture. If you're outside the culture, you don't know how to read such things. And you may believe the things that it says about free offers and so on. Um, but the form of something communicates before you read any of the actual words. So form criticism looks at the way that things are said, looks at the genre or forms of things, against the background of the social context that speaker and audience share, that sits in Laban. But as usual, you can just speak English. Sits in Laban means social context. And so on the next page um, are Vesterman's analysis, well my, well, my kind of analysis from Vesterman, of the forms of speech that Isaiah 40-55 uses against the social context in which the prophet was working, in which the communication is happening by the prophet talking in terms, in forms that the people would understand. So he uses the way people speak out in sorting out, speak in sorting out legal disputes in a gathering at the city gate. Or he talks in terms of the street corner accusation that might lead to a legal case. Or he talks in terms of the way a prophet or a priest speaks at the coronation of a king. Or he speaks in the way a prophet or a priest might speak in exercising a counselling ministry, for instance, in the temple. Or he speaks in the way that the community uh, prayed and lamented their fate. He takes up forms of speech they're familiar with, and those become the means whereby he um, delivers his prophecies. Um, the next page, page 127, where it says the woman's voice in Isaiah 40 to 55, as you see it says is mostly based on an article by a woman called Beb Wheeler Stone, in which she shows how many of the prophecies in Isaiah 40 to 55 um, sound as if they reflect women's experiences. Um, so they talk about childbirth, or losing your husband, or breastfeeding, or being a bride or not being able to have children, or being divorced, or rape, or having your children, having your husband leave you, for instance. Um, I'm struck by the fact that only second Isaiah speaks about God's daughters, the only place in scripture where it talks about God's daughters. Uh, only second Isaiah remembers Sarah. Uh, Uh, Ms. Babylon um, is uh, the, w Babylon uh, who stands for the Babylonian, the city of Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, uh, is critiqued for a failure of compassion of rachamim, which is the word for the womb. It's a very, a very clever piece of prophecy that, because it takes the idea, the common idea that you personify a city as a woman, and says, "Okay, Ms. Babylon, why don't you behave like a woman?" 
Why don't you show compassion? Why didn't you show compassion um, towards Jerusalem? Uh, and then about the servant song, the fourth servant song, so-called, this male servant, unattractive, unloved, non-violent, and perhaps silenced, becomes a paradigm of power that surely subverts the patriarchal paradigm of power. Compare the subversion of male power in the Gospels, choosing 12 male disciples and then them all being failures. So my sentence at the bottom, one could not prove that second Isaiah was a woman prophet, though a number of women prophets appear in the Old Testament, but at least a woman's voice appears deeply and prominently here, and the chapters need to be approached with some knowledge of women's experience if we're to understand them. Because you couldn't prove it. Because men write books. Um, the next two pages, uh, Isaiah uh, 128, 129, uh, Isaiah 53, over the centuries. Some of you wanted to know about Jewish interpretation um, of um, Isaiah 53 and the other aspects of the servant passage. And over those two pages, uh, I've talked about the way in which Isaiah 53 was interpreted in Judaism uh, in New Testament times and then in post-New um, Testament times. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, the next few pages, Isaiah, the story scrolls on, uh, 130 to 133, is a paper that two students at um, the seminary where I used to teach wrote in which Ezekiel and the aforementioned Miss Isaiah 40 to 55 are having a discussion um, at the um, release of um, Isaiah 40 to 55. Um, and in the chunk, the pages that follow on pages 139 and 140, there's a kind of summary of um, Professor Mao's book, When the Kings Come Marching In, Isaiah and the New Jerusalem, um, in which he um, describes culture being transformed, if you like, the city being transformed. Um, And a, a sort of overlapping point at the bottom there, um, the Isaiah agenda. The Isaiah agenda is that children do not die, old people live in dignity, people who build houses live in them, and people who plant vineyards eat their fruit. It is not a description of paradise. People do die here. It's a vision of God's intention for the human community here and now. It's a realistic, not idealistic one. It's modest. It makes no reference to education, leisure, democracy, or culture. It represents a minimum that God might be satisfied with. If this is God's agenda, we will wish to act accordingly and towards it. It is not difficult to do so. Uh, and then finally, there is a, a kind of exposition of the Isaiah 61 testimony. But those, that stuff from about the Isaiah agenda and the transformation of culture leads me into saying some things in response to some of the postings. Um, particularly, I think, because I think people were, or maybe had been taught to assume, or had always assumed, that the last part of the book is talking about heaven. And when it talks about the new Jerusalem, uh, when it talks about the new heavens and the new earth, it's inclined to make you think that in, in Revelation, in the book of Revelation terms, um, and to think in terms of heaven. But uh, as somebody pointed out, the way, that, the way in which it talks about uh, the children and the old people and the people building houses makes it look as if it's not talking about heaven. Um, and uh, that's absolutely right, I think. It's, th it's talking about the fulfillment, um, the consummation of God's purpose on earth, which is not surprising that Isaiah could, um, should expect to happen because, after all, God, God created the world in order to fulfill a purpose in the world. So it'd be a bit weird if God gave up on the world and decided heaven would do. Um, and there isn't really any indication that God has done that. When God talks about creating a new heavens and a new earth in 65.17, it looks as if that's a way of talking about 
Jerusalem itself as a new creation. It's, uh, so although the, that way of talking um, gets pick up, picked up and developed and utilized in a new way in the book of Revelation, you mustn't then, you have to try to read Isaiah in its own right, not read Revelation back into Isaiah. So 65.17 says, I'm about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice together in what I am creating. For I am about to, I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people um, as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. And then that's where it goes into there won't be um, uh, children dying in infancy um, and people not living out their lifetime and so on. Um, people building houses and inhabiting them. So that's the new heavens and the new earth. That's the new deal. That's the new creation. It's a new creation that um, God is bringing about by uh, restoring Jer Jerusalem to the vision of what a city might be. And that reminds me then of how extraordinary is the um, process that God takes the world through when uh, the city was invented back in Genesis 4 by Cain. Not much of a precedent for the city, really. Um, and you can see how Cain's inventing the city uh, is um, expressed in the nature of the city as, the, as we often experience it. A place of refuge, a place of danger, a place where you meet Lamech, um, that kind of thing. Uh, and you'd have thought that God, who started off the earth show in a garden, would end up the earth show in a garden. But actually, both in Isaiah and in, Re and in Revelation, where you end up um, is, is in a city. Uh, and it's another example of the wondrous way in which God takes human initiatives like sacrifice or building a temple or having a monarchy. city goes along with that in, in God taking those and making them into something that God can work with and achieve his purpose through. Um, hello? So, when, when is, is that? When is that? Obviously. It'll actually happen the day after tomorrow. <laughs> so, just be ready. Well, I mean, actually, it happened the day... You know that a lot of people have disappeared during the class. Well, the, the rapture has happened. <laughs> You're sitting there, but you haven't noticed. No, but what, what I was thinking was, at first I was thinking, okay, well, maybe it's talking about when after Jerusalem got destroyed mm. and then they come back mm. and they re-inhabit mm. it. Maybe it's talking mm. about that. Mm. But then that's not still, like people in their hundreds are not... Right, okay. And so, right. And so, so now you can say now and not yet. <laughs> because, um, because it's illustrating the thing I was trying to describe to you last time, I think, wasn't it? In terms of there are promises of God and it's characteristic of what happens through the prophets that, that, God's, that God's, what God says receives a partial fulfillment, but not a complete fulfillment. Now, when it's negative prophecies, you're really glad about that, because quite, that's quite often what happens. So Babylon does, does not get destroyed. Certainly, Edom, Edom doesn't get destroyed uh, uh, in the devastating, the complete way that the prophets talk about. But something happens. Babylon falls. Um, and, and so you, um, you, you, the fact that God has acted in that way is a foretaste of the ultimate completion of God's purpose, but the ultimate completion of God's purpose remains to be fulfilled. And that's true about the negatives, and it's true about the positives. So the exiles being able to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, and then um, in Nehemiah's day rebuild the walls, um, and, and thereby uh, put the, get the city back on its feet, isn't a complete fulfillment of the glorious pictures of a restored Zion that you read in 50, 40 to 55, but it's not nothing either. Uh, and so that encourages uh, a prophet like this one to reaffirm in that glorious technicolor the kind of things that appear in 60 to 62 with the picture of Jerusalem's transformation and the kind of things that we're talking about there in 65, uh, in which they know that God has done something uh, and that um, re, uh, reinforces their uh, trust that God will complete the job. Um, and so they keep looking for that. 
uh, and they are in the same relationship with those, prom with those promises as we are, as the church has been over the last 2,000 years with regard to the second coming of Christ, in which you see God doing terrific things from time to time, the Reformation, the Charismatic Movement, whatever, um, uh, and, and that isn't the end with a big E. It's not the fulfillment of all God's promises, but it's a big thing in fulfillment of the kind of thing that Paul did talk about, and it, it reinforces you in your capacity to be expectant both that God will ultimately fulfill those promises, but also that something might happen now. It might not be the total thing, but something could. So as that guy puts it, this is God's agenda. We will wish to act accordingly and towards it. It's not difficult to do so. That puts it maybe a bit too much on our side, because you need to have that combination of knowing what is God's purpose, not, not just God, well, God's agenda in the sense of something God is going to do, and therefore to be able to live in confidence but not live in confidence, that means you just sit there and wait for God to do it. Um, and so that's again, is part of the reason why the last 11 chapters keep putting together, keep interweaving promises of what God is going to, what God is going to do and challenges about what, what you have to do. So that, um, the cities in our uh, world uh, which are places that are so terrific but also so horrible, um, could become uh, the kind of city that Isaiah 56-66 describes, is a promise and a challenge that the chapters lay ahead of us. That, that, that when you are seeking to um, bring about urban renewal, you're seeking to bring about something that God is committed to. You're, you're not going to bring it about. It's only if God takes the pathetic efforts that we do, that that's going to be the means of bringing in uh, a new city. But you are working with the grain of what God is committed to doing. Mm -hmm. In Isaiah 6, it talks about uh, you know, making the people deaf and blind to God, and then that's referred to um, have to be read to their own people. Um, I can't remember the, the chapter. Is there any fear like today that we are currently in that deaf and blind mode? Uh, looks like it to me. Um, well, I, I tried to tell you that when I talked about Jeremiah the other day. Uh, yeah. So, one thing that and I was talking to Eddie Gibbs. I had dinner with Eddie Gibbs last week, and some of you will know who is the professor of evangelism who's retired. And I said, I told him what I was saying to these students. Do you agree with me that the church will be dead in California in 10 years? And he says, yep. He's the guy who's big on, you know, missional church and church growth and what do you call it, and uh, news shoots and all that lark. Uh, but, um, yeah, he said that's, that, yeah. Was it 20? Well, I okay, tw yeah, okay. 20 years. Okay, 20 years. Go, yeah, who knows? You know, sensible prophet does not put times on things. How do we get our eyes? Well, we, we certainly can't get our eyes open. Um, I think when we started asking the question, if you're asking the question, your eyes aren't shut. Yeah, you see, yeah, sh you, you can shut, you, you shut your eyes. Um, that, I mean, that's, um, that's, that's the prophet's agony. In the second Isaiah's agony is that people are willfully blind. They, they won't see it. And so... So that's the, the agony of a prophet, is trying to get people to be willing to see. Um, if, if we reach a point when we're willing to see, then um, God, won't leave, God won't leave us sightless, I don't think. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So one thing I've been noticing about the nature of prophecy is that there are, I mean, like you said, technicolors, they, you know, everything's just so... Well, I mean, either really, really awesome or really, really horrible. So <laughs> yeah, that's if true. If things are, in a sense, now but not yet, then, I mean, is it proper to kind of see maybe the end times, the second coming, as this big kind of culmination? Mm. Of oh, sure, yeah, yeah, stuff? yeah, 
Sure. Where mm. all the mm. horribleness and mm. all the goodness in mm. both extremes will mm. just kind of come in one big blast of craziness. Uh, well, there's there's two <laughs> there's two sorts of horribleness. I thought you were talking about sin. Well, I'm talking about like God. But saying, you mean God? You mean God? Well, there are parts I forget, like where God says, "I'm going to lay waste." Like you mean you, you mean punishment? World. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's 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 a vision of the the final consummation of everything, where where judgment will come and redemption will come. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and one day that, that that one day that's going to happen. Um, but 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 all but. But recurrently through Israel's story and through the church's story, you see little embodiments. Through the world story, you see little embodiments of each of those. Oh yeah, yeah. It might be thirty years. Might be forty years. If we, if you, if you pray, if we pray, God will. Have, God, God may say, yeah, okay, I'll relent again. They've prayed. I hate them for praying. Uh, yeah. God. Sorry. No, that's right. The only God cannot deliver on threats to punish, but He can't deliver on promises. He can't not deliver on promises. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You brought up an interesting thing, maybe joking, but I kind of joke me. Well, do you, do you think God like really? Do you think He's kind of like? Do you think He has that attitude where He kind of goes, "Oh gosh, they prayed against me," <laughs> or do you think it's more like He's kind of waiting for us to pray? Of course. Of course, yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, the the, um, the 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 great picture in Abraham in uh, in Genesis eighteen, uh, where where Ab- where God comes uh, and uh, and and the the two angels have gone down to Sodom to kind of check things out before there's brimstone fire and brimstone, um, and uh, and God kind of hangs around, almost as if God is saying to Abraham, "Well, now I've told you that. Is there anything you'd like to say to me?" Um, and at the end of the uh, chapter it says uh, and the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham you thought Abraham was speaking with God Genesis said God was speaking with Abraham yeah so sure yeah God's um, as Ezekiel in particular puts it um, well no actually third Isaiah puts it about about um, God appointing watchmen. Where's that? Did you? Did you? Yeah, sixty-two is it or thereabouts? Um, sixty-two. Upon your wall, your walls, O Jerusalem, I have posted sentinels all day and all night. They shall never be silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest and give Him no rest until He establishes Jerusalem and makes it renowned through the earth. Now, I, I think. It's more likely God who is posting these sentinels than the prophet is. So, so the prophet is appointing you to pray, to, to urge God to fulfill his promises. And also, as well as, to urge God not to fulfill his threats. Um, yeah. Um, what is a bit less about the Sabbath? Uh, the importance of the Sabbath in these chapters is interesting. And you get that in Nehemiah as well. Uh, the Sabbath became uh, an important marker of being uh, committed to God because it, it distinguished in the, in the period of um, Isaiah 56 and Ezra and Nehemiah and so on, it becomes something that distinguishes the people of Judah and Jerusalem from other people around. The, people, the other communities around who aren't Jewish, aren't Judean, don't observe the Sabbath, so they want to come and sell fish on Saturday, you know, in, in Nehemiah. So being willing to observe the Sabbath comes to, becomes to be a marker of your commitment. It's almost like um, it's, it's the key covenant uh, thing, not because observing the Sabbath in itself is more important than anything else, but because it's the kind of thing that's tough to do because other people don't do it. Um... Yeah, just one, one perhaps a, a comment about um, crea- about the importance of creation that one of the people commented on, and the significance of creation. That is, um, if we think about creation, we probably think of, of something God did back at the beginning, and then we think about continuous creation, so that the process whereby a baby comes to be born or a flower comes to uh, uh, bud 
is God, is God being creative. Uh, and that's true. And we think about us being creative. We think of um, the producing of something out of nothing in artistically and so on. Second Isaiah talks more, actually uses the verb create more often than any other part of the Bible, including Genesis. But it uses it in talking about what God, what God is doing now in the history of the people. That is, this thing that God is doing in, uh, in recreating, in renewing, in restoring Israel um, is, is the great act of creation that they're going to see in their lives. So it picks up the notion of creation in order to describe what God is doing in history as, some, as God being creative. And one of the things that implies is that I think for, well, certainly for Isaiah 40 to 55, the thing about creation is, 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 it's, it is as an expression of sovereignty, of power. The extraordinary thing about creation um, is the power expressed in it, the authority that's involved uh, in doing something extraordinary. Can I take passages about the city and apply them to myself, somebody asked. And the answer is, yes, you can, uh, but don't just do that. That's the thing about this business of, likewise, of seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies that weren't originally about Jesus. Of course you can do that. The Holy Spirit inspired Matthew, so how can I complain? And the Holy Spirit indwells you, so the Holy Spirit can do that in bringing Scripture home to you. That's, it's fine doing that, but... Um, if we miss the things that God wanted to say in inspiring this stuff in the first place, we miss out. And if, for instance, we only apply Scripture to ourselves individually, and we don't see that God was so often talking about the city or the people or something, then it's not what we do with the Scriptures that's adrift, it's what we don't do with the Scriptures that's adrift. <laughs> 